Good morning. Uh, we're starting our Advent series, and I am in denial that winter is coming, which is why I'm dressed as if I'm going to the beach. I'm going to hold on to this for as long as I can and try to keep the sweaters away, but my hands are really cold right now. Um, I, we, we are starting our Advent series as we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ, and it's, it's an exciting time of year. I'll talk a little bit more about why uh, we celebrate Advent the way that we do, but um, we, we really think it's important that we not just celebrate Christmas in ways that are shaped by our culture, but also celebrate Chris, Christmas in ways that are shaped by Jesus himself. And so that's what Advent is all about, preparing us to be reminded of the gifts that we receive because Jesus came here in the flesh. Now there are right ways to celebrate Christmas and there are wrong ways to celebrate Christmas. And I want to give you an example of a wrong way to celebrate Christmas. This is uh, uh, some letters uh, back and forth between a young man named Jeremy and Santa. And it gets progressively worse. I just want to warn you of that in advance. These are not my words. These are the words of a child. Let's be, let's laugh in shock and horror together. This is the first letter. Dear Santa, I am writing this on the day after Christmas. And I am very sad. I only received one of the two presents I asked for. Since you ate my cookies, I will assume <laughs> that my missing gift <laughs> was a mistake. I will give you one week to fix this. <laughs> Jeremy. Jeremy, I, I don't have uh, Santa's responses on the slides, but here's Santa's first response. I'm sorry you were disappointed with your presents, Jeremy. You asked for two very expensive presents, and Santa can only do so much. You need to learn to be grateful for what you have, not upset about what you don't. If you continue to complain, I will have no choice but to add you to the naughty list next year. And he's, that's a clever response by Santa, right? I don't think they knew what they were dealing with, with Jeremy. Next. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Ah, there it is. Ah, dear fatty. <laughs> Your threats don't scare me. I played your game and you did not deliver. This is not okay. I will give you one week and then you will pay. Jeremy, P.S. I don't even know why you care that it's expensive when you have elf slaves to make things for you. I think you are naughty for having slaves. Who is this kid? Dear Jeremy, you are being a very bad little boy because you cannot be happy with what you have. I've talked to your parents and have told them to take away your Nintendo. Now you have nothing. Once you learn to be grateful, perhaps you can have it back. I'm very disappointed in you, Jeremy. <laughs> you will need to be an extra good boy this year <laughs> if you want to make it back on the nice list. And I know it's coming, which is why I'm laughing. Jeremy was not content. Dear Santa, I do not like that stunt you pulled with my parents. You are on the naughty list now. Be afraid. You look slow and easy to kill. <laughs> Enjoy your cookies next year because they will be poison. I hope you die, Jeremy. <laughs> what? First of all, that kid des deserves to be on the naughty list. He also deserves to be on a number of watch lists. Who is this child? And I hope, I hope the authorities have been informed that he is growing up somewhere. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Why do I share this one? Because it's really funny. Uh, 
And two, you know, it is a terrible way to celebrate Christmas. And, and like I said before, Advent is a time of making sure that we, we celebrate Christmas in a way that's, that's helpful. I should get rid of this slide because it's pretty messed up and it'll <laughs> distract us all. But Advent is a time for us to prepare um, to receive Jesus in a new and fresh way every year. And even though the stories that we, that we know from the scriptures about Jesus' birth, um, we tell them all the time. And it can be easy to just think of them almost like fairy tales or a children's book. But instead, they're, they're real things that happen and change the course of history. So it's good for us to pause, reflect, and go back to the basics of, of what it is we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. Um, and, and for our series on Advent, we're going to go through the biblical book of Hebrews uh, as our Advent text. And, uh, and I'll tell you more about why we're doing that later. But normally we would go to the Gospels and read the, the narratives. But Hebrews gives us just a great insight into what, um, what we receive because of the gift of Christmas. There's a lot of mystery behind the book of Hebrews, but as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, we can learn so much about why Christmas is important. Why was Jesus born? What did his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension, what do those things accomplish? What do they mean for us? So I'm going to just do some background information on the book of Hebrews because we have to understand these things to understand uh, what we're reading. Um, And uh, stay with me. It's a little academic, but it's worth it. So the first thing we ask is, what is Hebrews? Well, it's a book of the Bible, dummy. Yeah, well, there's a lot of different kinds of books of the Bible. And, uh, and this one is a little bit different even than the ones surrounding it. Most of the, the books in the New Testament, other than the Gospels, are called epistles. These are letters that an apostle of Jesus sends to a group of churches in a specific context to help them figure out what it means to live out their faith in Jesus in this context. This one in particular, though, is written more in the form of a sermon. So I, I did a word count on Hebrews. It's about 4,600 words, which is a, like a slightly longer than average sermon. Um, and that's kind of how it's formatted. And it's a pretty impressive sermon, much better than the one I'm preaching today. But um, this, this book then um, comes to a group of people from a pastor. That's who's writing the book. From a pastor who uh, is trying to get something across to a congregation that they've got some connection to. Um, one of the curiosities about um, uh, the, the book of Hebrews is we don't know who wrote it. So uh, there, there have been mu- multiple traditions about who wrote Hebrews, and the most popular one was the Apostle Paul. Um, but that's probably not the case because of a number of reasons. I won't get into all of the, the details on this, but the style of the letter of Hebrews or the Sermon of Hebrews is very different than Paul's other writing. Um, and Paul always starts off his letter with an introduction. Like, hey, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, you know me, let's talk, right? And, and the author doesn't do that, they just get right into it. They just get right into the case that they're making, Right? And then the third thing is that one of the main differences in the way that um, this, this author writes and the Apostle Paul writes is that the Apostle Paul wants a very low bar because most of the people he is sent to are not Jewish. And we know that Jesus came uh, as a Jew and, and first ministered to Jewish people. And Paul is an apostle sent to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So he wants the bar to be really low. What are the very basic things they need to understand so that they can have a saving knowledge of Jesus and live life in him? The author of Hebrews does not have a low bar. If you read through the book of Hebrews and you think you can read it at face value, be careful. The author assumes a knowledge, a deep knowledge of the Old Testament 
And not just the scriptures, but also the theology that comes from the Old Testament. And so the author actually quotes um, the Old Testament so many times, 29 times of direct quotations, and there's 82 references in this book, this not very long book, 82 references to Old Testament scriptures. And the, the average reader would be like, what, what is he talking about, right? But, but for this group of people, the author is assuming a huge knowledge of the Old Testament, a high bar. There have been, um, th- th- there is a mention of Timothy, which is Paul's almost adopted uh, spiritual son. Uh, and so we know that this person um, is in Paul's circle because they know who Timothy is and there's a close relationship there, right? A case been, has been made for other partners of Paul, such as uh, Apollos or Barnabas or Priscilla, who um, Paul actually mentions as a co-worker in Christ in Romans 16. We know that this book came from Rome, most likely, somewhere from Italy, but most likely Rome. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's probably the church that Paul would have written the book of Romans to. So that's, that's where we get these context clues to try to figure out who it is. In the end, it's probably one of these three as our best guess, but we just don't know for sure. Then the question comes, well, why was this book written? We don't know the author and we don't know the audience necessarily. How can we know its purpose? But through context clues, we actually see a mixed audience. We have congregations of Jewish and Gentile Christians in community together, trying to figure out how to faithfully follow Jesus in this new family that's merged together. And and they're trying to follow Jesus faithfully in a world that doesn't make it very easy to follow him. The book was was kind of called Hebrews as they were putting the Bible together because at the time it was assumed that this book was specifically targeted to Jewish Christians because of all the Old Testament references. But there are points throughout the the book where there's these references to Gentile behaviors, parts of the uh, Roman Empire cult religion, and, and the author is saying, don't go back to those. Don't return to those behaviors. And this would only be a problem for Gentile believers who were trying to leave those things behind. And so uh, the other thing I would, I would point out is it's not surprising that these Gentile believers knew the Old Testament very well because up to this point, that's all the scripture they had, right? They don't have the New Testament that we have. The only scripture they would have would be the Old Testament. So they would have studied it fervently trying to figure out what does this mean and, and how does Jesus fit into it and how do we faithfully follow um, this, this very Jewish faith that we've been welcomed into, right? So they would cling to the Old Testament and looking for how Jesus fits into it and how they're supposed to live their life. So the author of this sermon, or more appropriately, the preacher, makes a very highly sophisticated case relying on Old Testament scripture and theology, but to spread a very simple message, okay? And that's where I want to kind of bring it to our text for today. All of that background information, the, the text is is, is very complicated, but the whole point is to say, hold on to your faith. Don't let go. Both the Jewish and Gentile Christians were facing very real pressures to give up on Jesus and return to their original religious commitments. In his uh, commentary on the book of Hebrews, David De Silva paints the picture this way. Nope, that ain't it. <laughs> Can we go back? Uh, nope, that ain't it. Uh, maybe we don't have it, so I'll just have to read it for you. Um, here we go. Uh, The Gentiles among them resolved not to worship any god but one, which made them appear antisocial as the worship of the traditional Greco-Roman gods pervaded social, civic, and economic life in their cities. There we go. The Jews among them began eating uh, with Gentiles as with sisters and brothers, allowing the Holy Spirit and teachings of Jesus 
a crucified blasphemer, in their opinion, and not the ancestral Jewish law to regulate their lives. The Christian audience of Hebrews found themselves treated as deviants. Their non-Christian neighbors, both Gentiles and Jews, regarded them as traitors to the way of life into which they had been born. The non-Christians openly humiliated Christians. They robbed and impoverished some of them. They even physically assaulted some Christians and had some thrown into prison on trumped-up charges. Their goal was to convince the father of Jesus that their new way of life is not worth the cost. The Christians had remained firm in their faith and helped keep one another on track for some time, but their neighbor's constant antagonism was beginning to achieve its goal, as some Christians had already stopped openly associating themselves with the group altogether. So that is the context, the situation to which this letter comes. A pastor trying to urge a group of Christians, hold on, don't let go of Jesus. And I can relate because sometimes I feel like that's, that's the best I can do in my Christian faith is just hold on. Sometimes I feel like that's the best I can do as a pastor is say, hold on, we're in this together. Let's hold on. And I'm not as smart or as eloquent as the preacher of Hebrews if Morris feels like this. Hey, Jesus is good even when his people aren't. Hold on, hold on to Jesus. So I think we can relate a lot to this. There are many pressures that, that make it hard to stick to our faith. There's all sorts of reasons why it seems like maybe, maybe I should just give up. And the preacher of Hebrews is saying, don't let go. Don't let go. Okay, that's a long introduction of Hebrews. Is anybody still awake? I saw no hands go up, so I assume nobody's awake. All right, well, wake up, and uh, let's get into the text itself. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I won't give the entire chapter um, because uh, for time's sake. But here's, um, whoops, come on. There it is. Here we go. The opening verses of Hebrews, let's look at this. Uh, and the first question that, that we seek to answer, and the Hebrews were seeking to answer is, what is God like? The writer says, in the past God spoke through our ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. And so the question is, well, what is God like? God is like Jesus. Look at that verse. What is God like? He's like Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The preacher of the sermon comes right out of the gates and answers what I think is the most important question. If if the most important question, is there a God, then the very related question is, well, what is God like? The author says, it's not a mystery. We look to Jesus. He's not just a little bit like God. He's not simply the best representation of God that we have to date. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. If we believe this to be true, then the answer to the question is that simple. What is God like? He's like Jesus. And to make the case for this, the preacher goes on to, to, uh, for several chapters to say that Jesus is superior to everything we've seen up to this point. Every messenger, 
Every text, every leader, every religious system that we've seen this point, no matter how well it represented God, Jesus is superior to all of it. So in chapter 1, there's this emphasis on Jesus as being a superior messenger from God. And messengers have delivered messages from God throughout history, uh, throughout the history of Israel, which is you know, why the audience has the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Messengers were sent from God to help the people know God. What is he like? What does he care about? And those primarily came in two forms, through prophets who spoke on behalf of God and angels. The author makes the case that what we have now in Jesus is far greater than what we received through them. Jesus is superior to the prophets. Jesus is superior to the angels. It almost sounds as if the author of Hebrews is saying there's something wrong with the Old Testament. He's not saying that. You wouldn't say that and then build your entire argument on the Old Testament, right? What he's saying is there's nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't complete. It was, it was a shadow of what was to come, and then Jesus was going to come and be the completion of it. Everything that it pointed to, even, even the questions it posed, would be answered in Jesus. The author is saying, we now have it. We have the fullest picture of what God is like. The mystery is solved. And this is essentially what the whole series is about. And I would argue, this is essentially what the whole Bible is about. It exists to point us to Jesus because that is how we know what God is like. Christmas is a, a celebration of when the eternal Son of God, the eternal Christ, became human and took on a human body, took on a human name, Jesus, and took on a full human experience. Christmas is the celebration of something we call incarnation, which is a theology word to say that God became human. He took on flesh. And Hebrews is all about the incarnation. Why does it matter that, that Christ took on flesh and became human? A preacher is reminding us, because God became flesh, everything is different. Hold on, because because of Jesus, we have every reason to hold on. The opening of the, the sermon gives us this amazing reason. Because of incarnation, because of Christmas, we have a full picture of what God is like. If that is life's most important question, what a gift that is to know what God is like through knowing Jesus. God is like Jesus. If we want to know what he's like, look to Jesus. I know I'm repeating myself. It couldn't be more important. Remember those what would Jesus do bracelets, the WWJD? When I first saw those, I wasn't a Christian. I thought it was corny. And now I'm like, I, I, I kind of like it. I'm kind of into it, you know? It helps us simplify discipleship. What would Jesus do or say in this situation is an excellent question to ask. It's, amazing, it's an amazing measuring stick for pretty much anything as we try to figure out how we should be, act, how do we treat people, how do we even think. Often you hear people uh, use phrases like Christian values or biblical principles. But, but one of the questions I always encounter when I try to figure out what do we mean when we say Christian values or biblical principles, we have over 2,000 years of history where Christianity has taken many shapes and forms and it's influenced by and it also influences its culture, its time and place. Some versions of Christianity have, have ways of thinking and acting that are actually in conflict with other forms of Christian, uh, Christianity, Right? Every single person, church, denomination has their understanding of what, what the Bible is trying to teach us. And every one of them thinks, well, my group has the 
the right version. We're the good ones. We've got the biblical Christianity. We've got the, the Christian principles. And oftentimes, we don't feel like we're resolved when we think of it in these terms. But what if instead we look at Jesus and his incarnation? Hebrews 2 dwells on the idea that Jesus became fully human. Theologians would say that not only does that mean that Jesus came to show us what God is like, he also shows us what humanity is supposed to be. Hebrews would later call him, the author of Hebrews later calls him the author and pioneer of our faith. We go where he went, we do what he did. So we need to read and reread the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to see what God is like and what we're supposed to be like. We inspect them for answers when the question is, well, what would Jesus do if he were here in my shoes? And often, you know, there are certain things that the, the Gospels don't speak into, and that makes it difficult. And we try our best then to understand, based on how Jesus interacted with people and, and interacted with each of these situations, how might he interact with this situation? And, a big and, we recognize our limitations, our biases, the way that culture has shaped us, and so we do this humbly. Not as a people that think we've got all the answers and we need to drop knowledge on people's heads. No, we've received this good news of Jesus and we're just doing the best that we can to be faithful. That's our posture as we do it. Okay, we've received this good news of Jesus. Well, what does the author of, of Hebrews say the good news is? So let's get back to Hebrews 1. And this is, this is some Old Testament, like this dude is taking dude or lady, is taking uh, passage after passage after passage from different parts of the Bible and saying, he told us all along, but now we know, we see it clearly in Jesus. And this is, this is what the, the author of Hebrews says is good news. Jesus is Lord. That's what the good news is. It says this, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with, an, with oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will ro roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So that's it. What is the good news? Jesus is Lord. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to remind his people or her people. Jesus is Lord. Now normally when I make slides, like the ones, I cut out all those little parentheses and letters because it's not very pleasing to the eye and it's a distraction. But I left those in there because these are footnotes. I left them in there because the, the author of Hebrews relies so heavily on the Old Testament. In these six verses, we have three direct quotes from the Old Testament. And I thought it was worth it for us to see that just how much this author is trying to say, this has been the plan all along. Jesus is Lord, and that's not new. In these verses, uh, David De Silva tells us that all of the references, those Old Testament references, those little footnotes, they come from messianic psalms, songs related to the Davidic kingdom. King David was an anointed king to lead Israel, but there was a, a greater promise for an anointed king from David's family who would be a perfect and permanent king. 
the, the, the title Messiah just means that, anointed king. In Greek, it's Christ. Christ, the anointed king. The author of Hebrews is saying that this new messenger is better than the prophets or the angels because he's the king. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah, the Christ. Better than any king before or after this king has come and this king is Jesus the Christ. And so Jesus is Lord is the good news of the book of Hebrews but the question comes from that, well, why? Why is that good news? If Jesus is Lord is the good news, why is it good news? Well, let's take a look at Hebrews 2. I love this passage here. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power over death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to become like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might, take, uh, he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the author will go on to flesh these themes out in much more detail over time. But why is it good news that Jesus is Lord? Because of Christmas, because of his incarnation, we have been set free. There's a nerdy theology way of talking about this called the ransom theory of atonement. And that's what the author of Hebrews seems to be suggesting here. This, the theory goes like this. We chose to rebel against God. We chose sin or rebellion. We chose to be the kings and queens of our own lives and walked away from God. And in doing so spiritually, like we sold ourselves into slavery to sin under the power of this prison warden that the <laughs> author of Hebrews calls the devil. By choosing our way instead of God's way, we're, we're imprisoned by sin. And the ultimate consequence of sin, the ultimate uh, end of sin is death. So who pays the bail? And the scriptures tell us that Jesus was tempted he took on our whole experience, even death, even though he did not sin. And on the surface, it looked like the enemy won. When Jesus was crucified, it looked like the devil won, right? But the grave could not hold Jesus. He rose from the dead. Now death is defeated. Jesus paid our ransom, and now new life is possible. There's so much more we can discuss about this ransom theory, but the, the very least, the, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that because of all the things that came from Jesus' incarnation, we have been set free from the power of sin and death. Because of Christmas, we have been set free. But we know this, just as the audience of this book know this, it is so easy to forget. It is easy to waver. There are many things that are fighting against us as we're seeking to, to follow Jesus faithfully. I've shown this video before, but it kind of feels like this. Oh, he's free. <laughs> Poor guy. All right, we can, we can get off of that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's such an interesting picture for what it sometimes feels like. 
We, we are rescued by God. And it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to just jump back into old ways of thinking and old habits because in the moment, I'm fooled into thinking that these things will bring me comfort. That there's some temporary benefit that makes it worth it to walk back. The whole story of the Bible, the whole story of humanity is this roller coaster of God rescuing us. We're grateful, we sing his praises, and then over time we forget and we go back to our old ways. It's like we've, we've received this prison pardon for crimes that we committed, and when they come to let us out of our cell, we're like, eh, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here. I, I know it's bad here, but at least I know it. At least I'm comfortable with it. I'll just stay here. No, if somebody offers you a pardon, you run far and fast, and you're full of gratitude for the freedom that you've received, Right? In the same way, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, don't go back to what's easier or more comfortable. Yes, following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. And so what do we do with this? The good news that Jesus is Lord? It's, it's simple. We hold on to Jesus. Look at this. Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Now, there's some religious language in there that we're going to get through as this series goes on, but fix your thoughts on Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Again, in Hebrews 2, we must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And then the very next verses, because it's easy, it sounds really easy to say, hang on, hang on, it's going to be okay. Hold on tight to your faith, hold on. The very next verses we, we, we hear, and I don't have time to read all of them, but we hear why it's worth it. The gospel we've received, the salvation we received from Jesus changes everything. It's, it's hard to hold on, but it's worth it because what we receive is way better than whatever it is we left behind. So for us in times of trouble, when it's easier to just give up, we hold on. In times of temptation, or something feels worth it temporarily, but we know it's not. Hold on. In times of distraction, there are a million things trying to get our attention. It is so hard to fix our thoughts on Jesus, but we, we work and we press forward and we hold on. Because of Christmas, we can hold on. In the flesh, Jesus experienced suffering. But as the writer of Hebrews says, God crowned him as Lord over all. He experienced suffering, but he's received this crown, this glory, this reward, right? He stayed faithful in the midst of distraction and temptation and suffering, and a crown was waiting for him. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants to remind us. In the midst of our troubles, our temptations, our distractions, we hold on to the hope that we will be blessed if we hold on to Jesus. The salvation that we have because of Jesus is so great. Don't trade it away for some temporary benefit. Don't quit now. Keep going. It's worth it. Because of Christmas, we can hold on. If you're in a season right now you feel like you're barely holding on, when you maybe feel like one of the members of this church who are like, man, all I get from following Jesus is rejection, loneliness, People talk about me behind my back. I can't get a job. Like, th their situation was bad because they were following Jesus. And he's saying, I know, I know, but 
what comes on the other end of that. The reward is so great. Eternal life is so great. Knowing who God is is so much, is so much more worth it than having a sense of temporary belonging in these old ways of doing things. You may be asking right now, okay, it's easy to say, hold on. How? How do I hold on? And we're going to talk about that throughout this series because that's simply what this book is about. About how do we press forward in our faith even when it's tough. But let's start with the simple things. Fix our thoughts on Jesus. Read about him. Talk to him. Imagine he's right there with you in the trenches of life because, as he promised, he is. He told us that as we strive to follow him, he would be with us to the very end. So what does that look like for for you this week? How do you remind yourself about Jesus? What time do you carve out to read about him, to talk to him? You know, find something that's helpful for you, that, that reminds you of Jesus, that encourages you to keep pressing forward and then hold on tight because he's right there. He's by your side. He's saying, you've got this. Hold on to that hope that victory is coming, even if right now all you see is defeat. Keep going. I promise you it's worth it. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up, and we're going to continue to worship through uh, some music, but we're also going to continue to worship through lighting our first Advent candle this week, the Hope Candle. And it's pretty appropriate for this message from Hebrews that we would light the Hope Candle today. So we're going to sing a song, and then um, Jen and Genesis are going to come up, and they're going to light the Hope Candle for us. But before we do that, I just want to do a quick sidebar. What is Advent? And what are we doing when we light these candles? Advent is, is a time of anticipation, it's a time of uh, gratitude, where we look at the many, many gifts that we receive because Jesus came here in the flesh. And so each week we, write, uh, we light a candle as, a, as a, a, a statement of gratitude. And today, that gift is hope, the gift of hope that no matter what we're experiencing today, man, victory is coming, glory awaits, perfect peace and harmony in God's presence is promised to us. So as we begin our Advent series, we hold on to hope. Whatever it is you're facing, whether it be uh, sorrow or celebration in the season, we still hold on to hope. Jesus was faithful. And because he was faithful, now we know what God is like. And now we know that we've got this invitation into his kingdom. And we hold on to hope as best we can, believing that, that it's worth it. No matter what we face this week, it's worth it to hold on to Jesus. So let's pray and let's continue to worship. Lord, you are, are so good. Thank you for this, this nearly 2,000-year-old sermon that still hits home today. And Lord, there's, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of having to understand um, you know, how, how religion and culture worked in that ancient time, but, uh, but ultimately people are people. And as they face pressures to, to fall away, to give up, we face those pressures too. And they look different, but they're there. And Lord, this morning, we just want to hold on to hope as best we can. Remind us, Lord. Remind us that Jesus is greater than any prophet 
Jesus is greater than, than any religious institution. We love the Bible that you've given us because it helps us to know Jesus, but Jesus is greater even than the Bible. That Jesus is, is so great, and all that we receive because of him is worth holding on. Help us believe that even when we don't feel that. Help us to encourage each other with that when one of us is struggling to hold on. And Lord, remind us each and every day that you're present with us. You're not watching us from afar, hoping that we figure this out. You're with us. You empower us. You cheer us on. Be with us. Remind us daily of your presence and give us all that we need to hold on to you as we hold on to hope. We love you and we pray all these things in your mighty name, King Jesus. Amen.